It's been a while since Sug sounded a political podcast about, well, politics. So let's jump straight back into it. I have a guest with me, a previous guest, a previous guy who I think probably is one of the best statesmen who isn't a statesman I've ever heard. Welcome again, Duncan. It is an honour and a privilege to be here. Okay, let's jump straight into it with the biggest news that's been going on for the last two years. Um, Duncan, what is the likelihood, let's have a discussion, what's the likelihood of the UK having a deal with the EU uh, before January 2019? What's the likelihood? Um, I'd love to say I could give you a percentage. I... I feel I'm fairly confident some some form of deal, some deal of one way or another will be hammered out. Now, will it be the all-singing, all-dancing deal to end all deals? No, it's going to be a framework deal, a deal we're probably going to build on for years, decades to come. But it's going to be a baseline deal setting out a transition period, what our future trading relationship is probably going to be like, will there be a customs union, the Northern Ireland issue and trade, services, goods, any tariffs, and it's just going to really set out the core elements and we'll go from there. Uh, But I very much doubt we're not going to get a deal of some form. So you do think we will get something? Something, yeah. Okay, and I I think that as well. I know there's a lot of talk about the possibility of no deal and there is a lot of kind of political commentary going on about no deal if you listen to the new statesman they they're talking a lot about it if you listen to uh ft's politics show they're doing you know a lot about no deal but i i think there is i i think there will be one and if we've learned anything from the last kind of 12 16 months it's in each stage of these negotiations Every time there's been a commentary saying there isn't going to be something, there always has been something. Now, whether that's something people like is a different matter. Do you think a any deal will get the numbers in Parliament to uh, kind of see it through? Or do you think there will be what has been coined in the last week, this impasse, where nothing can go through and Parliament just grinds to a halt? Well, I, I feel it's going to come down to a few factors. One, uh, a big, not a barrier such will be, you have Labour's six tests that it has to pass. Now, the way they phrase them, a lot of the tests sound like it's designed to, these tests are designed to be tests that any deal would fail. But I believe if the Conservatives and Theresa May can put a deal on the table, they seem to be fair, elegant and has future scope for development, Labour will go with that because I think Labour's definitive position is deal over no deal. Not to sound like Noel Edmonds, but they'd rather take the deal. The issue is then within the Conservative Party itself in that the big sticking issue, especially with the Conservatives because they have their supply and demand deal with the DUP, is going to come down to the island border issue. Uh, Because you'd... As we've seen from the beginning, we have our hardline Brexiteers like uh, Jacob Rees-Moggs, uh, Davis Davis and Boris Johnsons. Now, if we don't get a perfect solution for Northern Ireland, the worry, therefore, is that they're going to use that to undermine everything else. And they're going to do it under cloak and veil of being the extreme patriotic parliamentarians that we are withholding and continuing to allow the existence of a country to not let our country be annexed by the evil European Union and they're going to do that creating as patriots gaining support from the people so the rest of parliament feels under pressure to vote against the deal do you yeah I mean that's that's an ongoing solution and I, I don't know enough about the kind of ins and outs and logistics of the Nor- Northern I- Irish border to to kind of really comment on it. All I know is it's a hot potato in politics at the moment. Do you... Well, I'll, well, I'll see the, the, the issue it comes down to, because obviously it is the only land border we share with the European Union, it's that we cannot let the EU put a border in our country between 
mainland UK, Northern Ireland, that that is not feasible. That would be like saying, you know, we're going to wall off a part of Spain or, you know, Germany's going to get cut in half again. It, it's not feasible. You, you can't have one country isolated from itself. That That is, that's just not on the table. But at the same time, as a country, we are committed to peace on the island of Ireland, and part of that is meaning we can't have a border there. We can't have a hard, physical, wall-like border that Trump would be proud of there. It has to be fluid travel, because you have people that live on one side and work on the other. People can live in Northern Ireland, but their nearest shop is in the Republic of Ireland. It is ingrained as a way of life. It would be like saying we're going to rebuild Hadrian's Wall. It is just not feasible. So it's not as Jacob Rees Mogg put it, um, we should just go back to borders like we had in the Troubles. No, because what did we get from those borders? We got the Troubles. And I'm not going to say if we go down that route, the IRA, and that everybody's going to jump up. But it is a backward step for the island of Ireland. It's a backward step for us as a country moving towards the future of peace, a more unified future. To throw up a hard border once again there is to turn back our clocks. His solution might as well be to say, we're going to reunite Ireland by occupying the Republic of Ireland. It is an archaic solution and it belongs in the past. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I don't think we should go back to a hard border, but you were saying about um, it remains in the past. A lot of people who who kind of like think about the whole issue of the EU remember that actually we were once outside of the EU before it was the EU as we know it now and, and we joined it and that we, is the important thing we wanted to be inside of it we did but there was also a life outside of it and <clears throat> we have spent more of i mean in in terms of our countries lifespan we spent less than a year of our country's existence inside the eu um roughly so we spent more time out of it than we have in it and does that mean that actually we can survive on the outside now okay granted the world has changed a lot since then but are we going to have even if we crashed out with no deal, and I, I am not wanting that option, I don't think many people are wanting that option, but if we actually did crash out of the EU with no deal, would we not survive? I think we would. I think it would be tough, and I don't, as I said, I don't want this option. But I feel like we could survive just. But then there is just surviving and then there is being comfortable and it's very two different things. Now, if you held a vote in 2008, a straw poll across the nation and says, who would like a global financial meltdown? How many people would have voted for that? Nobody. None. Nobody willingly wants to be worse off. And we need to ensure we can do everything we can to make sure we are not worse off. And if that means getting a deal in the short term, isn't the best deal but can be built on to be better in the long term is that not the best course of action because as a country as a government you you do need to think about the long term hence the austerity program it it was not something to cure the recession in 2008 within a year it was over a decade or two over several years a, a long term plan and that's what we need to be thinking here with the future of our nation the long term we do. And if getting this bad deal means we've got the good foundation, though, with our European partners to go forward and know what we want and we can build upon it, it's, it's a first step worth taking. I Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I think a deal will go through Parliament. I think there's a lot of talk about what if Theresa May doesn't get the numbers, what will happen, will another referendum happen could we extend article 50 well actually to extend article 50 to enable a referendum to happen you would have to have primary legislation to repeal the act 
sorry, to repeal the text of section 20, some text of section 20 of the EU Withdrawal Act 2018 to actually be able to extend Article 50, then you have to get unanimous support from the EU 27, then you have to pass legislation for an EU, another referendum, and it goes on and on and on. I actually think it's better if whatever, like you said, whatever deal comes before, uh, I think MPs will vote for it because actually the the other option is much more messy, much worse, will cost longer in the, will, sorry, will cost more in the long run because if we do leave the EU in, say, three years' time, you, you know, if there's no deal and we extend Article 50 and we leave EU in three years' time, we would have still paid the contribution, we would have had the cost of a referendum and possibly a general election, and we would have, have to we would have to pay our legal settlement settlement outside of the EU. I think what's also important to remember is that even leaving the European Union, yes, the idea is we can trade more freely with the rest of the world, but that does not mean we're going to trade less with Europe. I think this, this is a, a common misconception that, oh, we'll trade with the rest of the world, it'll be fine. But actually, there's, the ongoing trade with Europe will still happen, that will still need to continue, and we need to make that as frictionless as possible. Indeed. Cool. Well, we have agreement there. Uh, yeah. We were Unusually. talking about... Sorry? Unusually. <laughs> um, okay, so we were talking about the long term and the future. Now let's look to the long term and the future about Saudi Arabia. After the, and we haven't talked about it on this podcast actually, but after the murder of Jamal Jashoggi, um, a, a couple of miles away from where I am right now, actually, which is uh, slightly odd. I haven't really thought about it too much because it's quite but the world media has descended in Istanbul over the last couple of weeks, obviously after the Joshoggi murder. There has been a lot of questions raised about, and Labour have raised this in the UK, about is it now time to stop arms sales to Saudi Arabia after they are just ruthless and barbaric and murder and dismember a journalist who is slightly critical or very critical of the Saudi regime. Is it time? No. It's not time? It is not time. Go on. Because, well, I'm, I, uh, we don't live in a, an ideal world and without in this non-ideal world which is the real world, there is war and there are dislikes and there is disputes between countries. And when that happens, military technology, weapons and soldiers, tanks, planes, submarines, you name it, it's, it's all needed by one country or another. Now, we are lucky enough to live in a country that is an international exporter of such hardware. And now Saudi Arabia... A lot of their army help pretty much all of their air force is british built now if we went right we're not going to sell you any more typhoons that is it we're cutting you off what in effect we have done is hurt british business uh bae will probably then have to do some more layoffs because the rest of the production line for typhoons gone there isn't this extra buyer for them the support chain's gone because we'd cancel that with the sales. And all Saudi Arabia is going to go is, okay, uh, can we get in on the F-35 project or can we buy some SU whatever? Or Japan, can we buy the J-22? Or China, can we buy the J-22? Us ceasing sales, all that accomplishes is to hurt ourselves at home and they're just going to change supermarket. Is that not an argument? And I, I agree about the... Um, kind of trade and, and, and stuff like that and it, it kind of goes back to our last conversation about the uh, EU I guess and you know how much how much can we trade after we've left the EU and actually 
Saudi Arabia is a really good example, maybe not the ethically good, but a good example as a case to say that actually we do still um our 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 products, our British made products, our Br- British manufacturing industry actually does extend past the EU. Um just to touch on that. But to bring it back to this topic about Saudi Arabia. Is there not a case to say because a lot of people are against Saudi Arabia, especially after the Jashogi murder. A lot of people condemn uh, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS. Is there not a case to say, actually, if we did stop, there is enough opposition in the world, globally, to say, no, actually, Saudi, we're not going to support you. And so, actually, you don't have any weapons you don't have any arms and is that actually not a good thing no because there is a part of the world that is very against them and their you know their their human rights and the way they act most of the western world is condemning that on how they do it but if the western world us eu and the United States went, right, because of that, we are not going to sell you any more weapons of any sort. Not a single ca- 330 caliber bullet on the way up to fighter jets. None of it. You're on your own. Saudi Arabia will just turn around. China, Russia, Middle East, who also have weapons productions, especially China and uh, Russia, who make equipment, maybe not to our level, but a very similar level, and who will happily turn a blind eye to the human rights abuse and go, yep, we'll take your money, there, have the J-22. And nothing will come of it. But if we continue to sell them the weapons, yes, we could say, oh, we're, we're helping support this regime. But that gets us inside their embassies, inside their palaces, and that allows our politicians, our diplomats, our ambassadors to whisper in their ears and tell them and talk with them, and we can sit down with them, you know, this isn't right. You, you should be stopping this. You know, these human rights abuses, we need to scale them back. And having that trading relationships means we have that diplomatic relationship of more of a political clout to have an effect. Has Theresa May, do you think Theresa May's reaction to the Jashogi murder and Saudi Arabia's actions has been enough? Because I, I haven't seen much from Theresa May. If anything, I don't think I have seen anything from Theresa May in terms of condemning it, in terms of any comment from her in relation to Jashogi or the wider debate around Saudi Arabia arms? I, I, I believe she has condemned it, but at the same time, is it her place to be spending a lot of time on the issue? Because, not to trivialise it, but it was a Turkish reporter going to a Saudi Arabian embassy and whilst she, the murder of him is a tragedy and it is horrific... It wasn't a Turkish reporter. Is it a problem? Well, is it Donald Trump's problem? He sent Secretary of State Mike Pompeo here straight away to Turkey and Saudi Arabia. And has how much has that achieved? Well, OK, argue, you, we can debate whether that has achieved a lot and actually I don't I don't really think it has I think a lot of it was bluff well not bluff but a lot of it was kind of um yielding political power which may or may not actually be effective but my point my point is Donald Trump immediately kind of reacted and kind of flew over one of his cabinet members to kind of discuss the issue and the problems. And I mean, Jamal Khashoggi did have US citizenship. Uh, his son has Saudi US joint citizenship. So there is a connection there in terms of Jamal was actually in self imposed exile. Let's compare the reaction from Donald Trump taking away the residency and the visa. Uh, sorry, and the, the um, legal side of it. 
let's compare Donald Trump to Theresa May's reaction. It's like, it's almost been an extreme from Trump, which, <laughs> when isn't it an extreme from Trump? But an extreme from Trump, an extreme from, and, a, and an extreme from May. And May, who would normally be quite forceful on these things, I would probably have, kind of say, over the last couple of years, especially with the Syria attack a, couple, um, a few months ago, Donald Trump retweeting Britain first. Actually, she's been remarkably quiet about a murder and dismemberment of a journalist. Not very far from her doorstep. A lot closer than Donald Trump. But don't forget, she also she was leading the international condemnment of Russia not long ago. Right. But this isn't Russia. No, it's not. But... We're there to. We need. So we're saying we need to condemn Saudi Arabia for this. But at the same time, she has condemned the action. But there is already somebody leading the international effort. And let's not forget, America has a vested interest in bringing Turkey back into their arms because recently, recent years, I've had a very cold relationship. Turkey swinging very much to the Russian side. So America swoops to the defence, stands up for them against Saudi Arabia looks good they might start buying patriots do you think there is anything Theresa May or any of the cabinet here in the UK can do to kind of try and settle the political steam from the Jashoggi case I think we can continue to do what we've been doing but at the same time where it was the European condemnation Angela Merkel, Macron. Let's not forget, it's not just Theresa May. We're not, it needs to be an international. Uh, so yes, Theresa May is lacking, but we need to ask who else is lacking in their condemnation. Oh, completely. But, you know, <laughs> you and I, although I'm currently two miles away from where it happened, but, you know, you and I are both in the UK. This is mainly a UK listen to podcast. That's why I was on about, that's why I was kind of honing in on Theresa May. I think, do, okay, let me, let me ask this. Do you think, and I think this is true, do you think if leaving the EU wasn't such a massive issue in the UK right now, that Theresa May, and if her diary wasn't plugged with that, um, Theresa May would actually maybe have responded differently? I, I don't believe so, because her... Because once again, it is a Turkish reporter. It's not. It's not our jurisdiction. If a BBC reporter was there, that was the one that got killed, then yes, she would have been at the spearhead. She probably would have been. We would have probably announced a new military exercise not far off their coast. Stepped up anti-piracy patrols. All of this, there would have been a huge reaction. But it wasn't a BBC reporter. I don't even know the media outlet for the reporter. Washington Post. And they were. And how many of the sixty odd million people in the UK would have named the outlet? Because yes, internationally she probably should have stepped up, but domestically, within a day or two, it was out of the news cycle, and people at home are caring more about the NHS, more about. Brexit. Yeah, so that's really interesting because, and actually, that leads quite, uh, quite smoothly onto the Trump and the synagogue shooting and this, um, the mail bombs as well, um, or n not the mail bombs, but the suspicious packages. The suspicious packages. The Jashogi thing has been in the media in the US for like two weeks, dominating it absolutely dominating it this was prior to uh suspicious packages and uh yesterday's horrendous synagogue shooting but jashogi's been in the u.s press for two weeks now is that because one of the reaction of trump two because he was a u.s citizen and also because they consume or the way the u.s public consume news is in a kind of different way 
we consume news. Because there's, yes. a, ret- there's a rhetoric in the US against media, isn't there? Like, generally. Well, but also, even if you don't subscribe to Trump's ideology of fake news, their, their news, it, they have a news narrative. You have CNN selling a narrative. You have Fox News selling a narrative. Yes, it is the same story, but the way it's spun is totally different. And that is one thing that riles up the United States because there is this narrative to news, whereas here we get the facts reported and then we get commentary on it afterwards. So we get the straight truth and then we can look to find out our own political leaning on it. But here, everybody can get the facts as the facts are. Over there, CNN or Fox will probably leave out some facts if it aids the narrative they want to spin. Okay, so let's move on kind of because it, it flowed into it and you and I discussed we 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 would keep this probably to UK news but actually the Trump and synagogue shooting and also the suspicious packaging which aren't related directly but I I believe are related in the sense of this very very polarized narrative to the US in terms of its politics and in terms of its journalism and just kind of like like we were just saying about how the US consume news but also how the US react to news as well and I mean is there a rise of anti-journalist hate across the world you know, obviously, you've got Jashoggi. Over here in Turkey, you have political journalists locked up. Um, you have, you've had, well, a few years ago, you had um, a journalist in the UK, from sorry, from the UK, be assassinated in Afghanistan, and you've got the suspicious packaging being sent to. Um, CNN. You also had the Chicago uh, Tribune, is it? The newspaper who there was a bomb. I believe there was a bomb there a couple of months ago. Um, Or a bomb got sent there. There was something about the Chicago Tribune newspaper. What is it about journalists being assassinated, tortured, murdered what like what is all this about and actually are we heading for really dangerous times it's because journalists represent the truth you don't want to hear they 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 say the things that you would like to not hear you know if you agree with trump you will have journalists spouting facts against him truth against him and all the negative views that you don't want to hear you don't even know want to exist and the journalists are the representation of the opposing view and to attack them is to attack the opposing view very visibly do you think it's got worse since trump came to power in the presidency yes and no yes because trump coming into power didn't create all of this hate all of this negativity he didn't create it he just enabled it he gave it a platform because it was all there before as as i believe frankie boyle said these right-wing extremists they were always there they were just on your twitter block list before but now they've been given a voice and not just any voice a voice from the president to give this power yet you can come out say what you want you know so what if people disagree with you if they disagree with you the fake news they're the ones that are lying and they've been given this validation to come out and then that has just been let roam free and this hate and disillusionment and just outright targeting of people is now going to extremes because it's been left to be unchecked and it can't be checked because as soon as you try and check it there is a president that says no he's got to be left free but it backfired on Trump a couple of days ago, didn't it, with the mail bombs or the suspicious packaging, um, packages being sent to um, two former US presidents, a Republican senator, 
and Robert De Niro, all who are quite outspoken critics of Trumpism and Donald Trump himself. It backfired on him when he, shortly shortly after it was kind of announced a few days ago, didn't he come out and say, this is the news making it, uh, this is kind of the, the news of reporting on suspicious packaging and this is all fake, rah, rah, rah. And then kind of like two hours later came out and was like, ah, yeah. Uh, so this isn't actually fake. Um, <laughs> I've been told this is real. It's, this is a real thing. So it, okay, <laughs> that wasn't the best description. But my point, my point to that is his narrative often backfires in terms of he will say it's fake and a classic and, and it happened on the day one of his presidency was his ignore, uh, inauguration numbers the issue is those that care about those who would go oh yeah those that would look at the back and go oh that doesn't look good on him were the ones that never voted for him in the first place those that voted for him in the first place don't really care if it backfires no, it's interesting. I was listening to a podcast uh, yesterday which was saying about how the public in the UK and the US, possibly beyond, react to damning things like the Access Hollywood tape that came out in Trump's presidency, um, obviously the vote to leave the EU over here. If you... and and. and so you have the Access Hollywood tape and you have the Joe Cox murder before the EU referendum. Um, both of those situations kind of made the media and or the media kind of reported that the shift would be towards the opposite. So, or sorry, the opposite in terms of Trump and the same in terms of Joe Cox. So the opposite in terms of Trump, meaning that after the Grab and Buy the Pussy video came out, Access Hollywood tape, it would swing to Hillary Clinton, and that would, you know, Donald Trump was doomed from that day onwards. And for Joe Cox, um, obviously a Remain supporting MP who was assassinated um, in Bexley and spent constituency a couple of days before the EU referendum the media kind of had this narrative that it would swing massively towards Remain because she was Remain supporting both of those things and they're, they're just two out of many examples both of those things have really came out against what I guess everyone or most people expected to happen and yeah I guess it's it's just interesting how like what you just said was Donald Trump supporters don't care if it backfires. They just love him for him. And they just love the fact that he kind of sticks by his word. He's a bit ballsy. He's a bit controversial. But he gets a message out there. And it's... <laughs> um, commander in tweet or something. Is a is a nickname piled on Donald Trump, and it it it's funny, but there's a serious side to it, which is, I think, quite dangerous. Sorry, I I ranted there. <laughs> you did, you did. Uh, it is dangerous, but I I feel especially when we look at the synagogue shooting. Yes, he might have validated uh, an idea of hate in the United States. But this isn't the first, and sadly, it won't be the last mass shooting or shooting of such a sort within the United States of America. It won't, but it, the fact that it... This is significant, I think, because it happened in a religious place of worship and especially a Jewish place of worship. Um, and obviously, with the whole... If you link it back to the UK, the kind of anti-semitism row that's engulfed the Labour Party over the last two years I'm not saying I'm not saying Labour anti-semitism and the synagogue shooting in the US yesterday had had any connection but what I mean is this 
going on rhetoric against well you've got islamophobia over here and in america and you've got anti-semitism creeping back into fabric of society what's the opposition to this because it, it just seems to be rolling yesterday was really significant for me because it seems to be rolling out this message that these people have been emboldened like you were saying by the election of Don, donald trump these people have been emboldened to kind of be free in their freedom of conscience is now action. It, it's not just a thought anymore, it's an action. And it's an action which generally has very, very devastating consequences for communities, people, society and the world in general. Sorry, can you rephrase that? Anti-Semitism is on the rise. Islamophobia is still there. But yesterday was significant for me because... It, it's now turned from being on Twitter, Donald Trump being on Twitter, to actually Donald Trump being on Twitter and em- emboldening people with very, very extreme views to actually go out and destroy communities in the world in general. He's just made this, made it legitimate again. And last time we saw this was, well, there are echoes of, the 30s but I'm not saying Donald Trump is Hitler or Stalin but there are echoes of if you look at yesterday shooting in a synagogue there was obviously a reason he went to a synagogue you know if you look at school shootings and I'm not saying these are better or worse any school shooting is sorry any mass shooting is horrible and abhorrent and if you if you look at the school shooting, there is no direct target there, apart from children, which, okay, is massively wrong. But yesterday's shooting in the synagogue in Squirrel Hill was against Jews. Jews... You don't go into a synagogue and open fire and kind of guess who you are firing at. You go into a synagogue, get a gun, and fire at Jews. There's no distinction. Like, you know who you're firing against. I guess what I'm asking is, what's your opinion on the significance of yesterday, yesterday's shooting? Or do you think it doesn't have any significance and that it's just another shooting? I would say that there is some significance that it is, it was an attack in a synagogue, the victims were Jews. But it's a wider symptom of Americans shootings because yes as you just said if you go into a school it's just children but actually children who share a similar belief system whether it's religious or the American dream a societal belief they they actually have their ideology rather than their religious beliefs their ideological beliefs in the schools are the same and representative of something that people hate and can take their anger out on visibly so I think, I think, yes, you know, we need to tackle any anti-Semitism, anti-Islamophobia, uh, hell, and anti-Hinduism, anti-Buddhism, anti-Sikhism. Yeah, any kind of religious hatred that comes up, it needs to be tackled. But we need to tackle any form of radical hatred that turns into violence and shootings. Completely, but... You were saying about the ideology of schools and the ideology, the societal ideology versus the kind of religious ideology. I, I, I find it really hard. I, I disagree slightly to the extent of what's the ideology in a school? You don't, I don't see many school kids in the UK or the US, not that I live in the US, but I don't see many school kids walking around with um, Jeremy Corbyn stickers or Hillary Clinton stickers or Donald Trump stickers or Theresa May stickers. Like, I don't see that... Are, are, are kids not innocent in ideology by themselves? Do they, do they not sing the national anthem, salute the flag? Do they not represent America's Oh, yeah, but, but that's patriotism. But that's patriotism. Is, it, is patriotism and ideology different things? Yes. Patriotism is an ideology and it is a represent 
and somebody being patriotic is a representation of that ideology so to attack them is to attack that ideology itself but are, are kids wise enough to do what the nfl did a year and a bit ago and go actually you know what we're going to completely go against protocol and not sing our national anthem or kneel in front of our um kneel during our national anthem what i'm trying to get at is are, do kids have the political mind do kids have the mind to go no, actually no, but they, they have the political mind it's the person doing the attack is attributed to them so it doesn't matter if the kids have even the faintest idea of the intertwinings of sociological belief systems, ideologies, and how it's intertwined through school systems. It doesn't matter if they understand that. It's the person committing the attack. It is what is in their mind that is the issue. And it's how do we get that thought that wants to create an attack out of their mind. And our first step towards making everywhere safer, not just the synagogues, is firearm legislation but before we even need to get to that we need there needs to be programs that try and tackle hatred that look for warning signs with young people at schools or in the workplace to help root out this sheer hatred that is in society that is causing these attacks yeah i agree i agree i just and i'm still a bit confused about the ideology of school children and but i i i get your point about a gun again a, a gun person be it a man or a woman um kind of attacking a school as a way of attacking an ideology or indeed attacking a synagogue in a way of attacking a religious belief i get that connection i don't get the connection between the in terms of the school shooting the kids themselves because they actually don't have a staunch identity like a Jew does or a anti-Trump person does or a pro-Trump person does or whatever. Let's leave that one there. Let's hark back to the UK. This week, a temporary injunction was broken by a Lord, uh, Lord Hayne, an ex-Labour minister, I believe, and about naming a famous, very rich, high-profile businessman in terms of allegations about sexual assault and harassment. Lord Hayne used parliamentary privilege to name this person, Sir Philip Green, in the House of Lords and therefore kind of trumped the... I feel like every time I say Trump, there's some... I have to, like, distance it from that... What's it in the US presidency? Um, Trump kind of... The newspapers and the injunction. So the newspapers are in this... The Daily Telegraph, who uh, kind of had a front page the other day or had a... ran a story and had a block... a black square saying we can't report on this because of an injunction. Um, There's a really funny kind of juxtaposition they're in because they can't still report on the details and they couldn't report on the name, but because newspapers can report on whatever is said in the House of Lords or House of Commons, they can now report the name because it was said in the House of Commons, not because the injunction has been removed. So it's a really... The law was followed. The law was followed. Where's the issue? Well, so the issue is parliamentary privilege is this idea that MPs... You cannot be prosecuted for and lords, in yeah, Parliament. You can't be held. Now, it is important to state that parliamentarians are not above the law when they're outside of the Commons or the Lords. They can still be arrested and they can still be sent to jail and prosecuted. Um, but inside inside the chamber, they can't be. Is parliamentary privilege something that should still exist? And was Lord Hayne right or wrong to name 
break a break a temporary injunction well it needs it needs to continue to exist otherwise we're in a hell of a lot of trouble because not only does it allow the parliamentarians to say that it allows the reporting of what is said in there so to get rid of it means you, you don't actually have any legal protections if you report on anything that happens within parliament which puts the society as a whole in a very dangerous position if you don't have any protections repeating what was said there but also um, yes he was right to say it because well, a it is in the public interest and b he has the right to say it there you go he can't you know, if you have the right story like that you you should because it's it's not about somebody who got maybe an injunction to so they couldn't be reported about some tax dodging or something like that it is a man who was abusing women and allegedly in society, we should point is out that not pardon? allegedly we should point out before we have philip green's lawyers contact sug sound um allegedly harassing and abusing women is Sorry. that not in the public interest or considering this was the man who also ran one of our biggest high street chains into the ground and then only under considerable pressure from the law bailed out the pension scheme for it a man who has been a long going debate about revoking his knighthood yeah so that's a I, I wanted you to say that because I wanted to come in on that point revoking his knighthood do you think if okay the fact that he has been named as this person who is at the center of allegations around abuse and sexual harassment of women um if proven I, I, well actually even if not proven the fact the very fact his name is in the center of it does that mean should we look at actually revoking his knighthood and also did peter ha uh, sorry did lord hayne um did he kind of I, I i'm asking this as a question not as a assumption did he say his name as a way to fast track the the move to withdraw philip green's knighthood like, do you think Lord Hayne used parliamentary privilege to help an ulterior motive of removing Sir Philip Green's knighthood? No, I believe he named in so the press could report on it. So that, that is the main reason he did it, to allow the press to report on the person. So then the issue is the judiciary and kind of non-disclosure agreements which is where all this kind of centers in um what i mean you're a journalist where <sighs> it's a really difficult one for me because the the judge imposed an injunction rightly or wrongly because of money and wealth you know Sir Philip Green spent half a million pounds on non-disclosure agreements, so this wouldn't come out. Um, but effectively what's happened is the Lords, or a Lord, has completely gone against a injunction, temporary injunction, made by the independent UK judiciary. Does that not have a huge implication in itself you 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 were saying about the um the importance of parliamentary privilege but isn't actually the importance of a uk independent judiciary the same has has he threatened their independence has he potentially tied their hands has he altered the way in which they serve justice has he removed well, members of the court has he, uh, you know, overruled precedent? Potentially change the way they serve justice, because... How? How? Well, because th wasn't there going to be a court case against Sir Philip Green about this? Which is the whole reason they wanted an injunction, so it wouldn't be reported. But wouldn't... 
now the name is out there and the press can report on it, doesn't that potentially uh, impact on any justice or not justice that comes of the original case that Sir Philip Green now, is accused of? Well, could, could I ask you, would it make a difference if this was done in the House of Commons rather than the House of Lords? No, 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 no not at all. What I'm on about is parliament parliamentarians going against a injunction be it temporary or permanent this case temporary injunction by the independent UK judiciary that's the that's my point it doesn't matter which parliamentarian did it but this this is power and this is enshrined in parliament that they are allowed to do it and let's not forget this isn't the first time it's happened it's not going to be the last time it happens no but parliamentary privileged it's very 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 rarely used and lord hayne himself said uh it shouldn't be abused and it he had great he took great responsibility um before or he thought a lot about it before he said it and kind of came to the view that that it was better to say it than not to say it. He didn't just kind of but equal, come out with it. Let, can, let's for a moment though. Let's flip the coin. Is it good for the independent court system and good for British justice that somebody can be accused of something? The tr- proceedings can go through court, and we have no idea who it is. The the court can't speak about his name outside of the courtroom is that good for justice is that good for the court system that we can't actually report what's going on yeah but that happens all the time i mean how many people pick up a newspaper and turn to the court pages no no that no that is different there's a difference between not reporting something and not being allowed to report something that that, that is a very big difference okay Point taken. And before you bring out the national security rule, that is once again very different from somebody being conscrupulous in their private life compared to operations that could jeopardise the lives of special service personnel. Oh yeah, yeah, I wasn't going to bring in national security. I just security. wanted to pre- prelude you before. Um, because, you know, a few years ago, Ryan Giggs was named in Parliament when he had his injunction. Uh, and hell, you can even get a super injunction that doesn't even allow you to report about the fact there is an injunction or what's going on under that injunction. But it, it, parliamentary privilege allows you to do it. Once again, he said, with great responsibility. But it is in the public interest, and it, it is no different to Edward Snowden whistleblowing about the surveillance that was going on. Yeah. Okay. I... I guess my issue is, not issue, I guess my question is about should parliamentarians get involved with the rule of law? Yes, because one needs to, the, the law cannot be outside the means of the common man and the means of the common man to affect it is parliament. And I'm not now saying parliament should... Every every every, you know, every every judgment they go oh hang on we want to approve this, but at times Parliament should be able to say hang on a minute, Let, let's let's just check here. Because uh, I mean it's interesting. I don't know if anyone else has drawn this conclusion, but if you um, if you look at PMQs and when a constituency backbench MP goes, I have a case in my constituency of. X, Y, and Z being treated like X, Y, and Z by X department. Um, you'll generally find a minister or Theresa May, the prime minister, stand up and go, I can't comment on an individual case, but it has been noted and will be passed on, whatever. Words to that effect. Is that, is that the same? Are they withholding parliamentary privilege in that case? Because, actually, parliamentary privilege would say, from what we've discussed... But the, the issue, how, how many of those people in those constituents have a net worth of just shy of five billion US dollars? No, but that, but that isn't what I'm on about. What I'm on about is a process of 
parliamentary privilege. Why does Theresa May and other ministers take the precedent not to comment when they could under parliamentary well, privilege one, one, and not have legal redress? Can we actually guarantee she knows everything about that case? No, not at all. But I... So is, is the no comment more a reflection of I don't actually know, so I'm going to say no comment because I don't want to get involved in something I don't know about? But I can't recall... Yeah, but even um, even if it's... Um, topic questions like if it's a debate on a specific topic and it's not PMQs where it's general Um, I don't recall but also let's not forget there is adding a comment onto an ongoing court case but that could actually influence the outcome of the court case but naming the person involved in the court case doesn't just naming them doesn't because even if you name them there is still legislation in place to dictate what can and can't be reported in the media, what what is allowed, what is not allowed, to make sure there is a fair trial. So even naming Philip Green doesn't jeopardise his chances at a fair trial, doesn't jeopardise his chances at being proven guilty or innocent, having a fine or prison time or anything like that. It doesn't jeopardise any of that. All it puts down is the case can now be openly reported and he's a bit smeared in the public. But it so can't be. But it can't be openly reported. Pardon? It can't be openly reported because the injunction still remains in force. No, no, no. they could report on the case. Though. They couldn't report on who it was. So what? What has now happened to the injunction? Because the injunction it's hasn't been revoked. Pretty much, been, it's pretty much been overruled by Parliament, by the sovereign body elected to this nation. Not elected. Because lords aren't elected. Which is a point you made to me on Twitter the other day. (laughs) Yep. Let's move quickly on to uh, a topic that you wanted to raise. Women in the armed forces. There has been legislation passed uh, in the last few days by the Conservatives that women can now serve on any position in the armed forces, front, line or otherwise. I think this is good. I think it's a shout for equality. I think it's a shout for diversity. Your thoughts? I believe it is the right move to go forward. It is not a move there to secure political points or equality points or to get Gavin Williamson promoted. It is simply there because it is the right move for modern society because there is no reason why women who want to serve should be not allowed to serve in certain roles. But also, let's not forget, we're allowing women to openly serve in these roles will apply. But we're not lowering the requirements. We're not saying because you're a woman, ergo, you only need to be able to carry 15 kilograms rather than 20. The requirements are set. If you can meet them, you're in and you can do the job. And all we have done when we are facing a recruitment crisis, we've opened the floodgates to allow the other 50% of the population to take on these roles and created a more sustained armed forces going forward into the future. So is this a political um, move or is this an equality move? Because you're it's saying an, about... It, 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 it's more of an equality move. It, it's nothing to do with politics. It but, is just but, simply... But you just said there was a huge... allowed like, women to serve in, in the Navy. But you just said there was a huge recruitment crisis. Yes, but once again, that's not political. Being able to recruit in the armed forces, not getting enough men or women in isn't a political point. That's just business. Yeah, I get that. But the let's do a bird's eye view on this situation. The armed forces are having a recruitment crisis over the last, what, 12 months? Probably. 10 years. Okay, 10 years. Um, It's really come to a head in the last kind of couple of years. And then the Conservatives come out with now women are allowed to serve, which... Oh, no, 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 no. The Ministry of Defence comes out with, not the Conservative Party, the Ministry of Defence. Okay, but who... Yeah, uh, okay, but who... Yes, but who directs the civil service in the Defence... Ministry of Defence? The Secretary of State, who is a Conservative MP, who is a Conservative... Um, cabinet member, a minister of Her Majesty's government. 
directs the civil service inside that department, not the civil service directs the... The civil service doesn't direct politics, politics direct the, directs the civil service. Okay, so what you're saying is everything the Ministry of Defence does is a brownie point for the Conservative government at the moment. No, I'm not saying everything. I'm saying have the Conservatives scored a political point because they have seen a way they could because there is a recruitment crisis in the armed forces. So is it... Okay, let me put it in another way. Is the only reason they have opened this up to women serving on all positions of the armed forces because there is a recruitment crisis and it looks really fantastic for the Conservative Party and it fills up their social media. No, no, because we've been moving towards this for years. Women have been embedded in more and more units. We've seen that in the Navy, you have male and female cabins on warships that can go to the front lines, Uh, more and more women operating medical tents in support roles nearer and nearer the front lines in armoured battalions. We we have been progressing towards this point. It is not suddenly a rabbit they have pulled out of the hat. It's been a very gradual change. And this is this is the, the end point. This is the end goal. Okay, it just seems quite politically convenient for the Conservatives to come out with it right now. No, political convenience for the Conservatives would be to say we've suddenly found a load more funding for the Ministry of Defence. Ah, because now let, that... <laughs> because let's not let's not forget Widening the recruitment pool isn't the same as getting loads of new recruits in. You're saying about extra money for the armed forces. Will it come in tomorrow's budget? What should we expect? What do we I want? Imagine, uh, I imagine there will be a, 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 a small increase to cover uh, extra costs in the Ministry of Defence budget to allow the progression of Trident in the next phase which is money that was in the contingency budget for Trident anyway. I believe recently a £500 million investment was announced, but on the whole, there will be no new funding for the armed forces. There's going to be, um, whether it is going to be of a new, probably some more money put into universal credit. There'll be, as per always, more money invested in infrastructure and cyber security, HS2 and a new tube line. Um, probably a uh, a bump in somehow they've somehow muddled the figures so that it sounds like the NHS is getting more money. What else should we expect from a budget generally tomorrow? Now, uh... social social housing spending, mental health services spending, NHS spending, uh, more money going into the Brexit contingency budget, higher return on tax than expected, lower debt and deficit, bringing the the, the total. Uh, money we owe down more towards uh, more equal books which I'm sure the target will probably be, be put back by another year just to be safe okay um, what do you think should be in the budget that won't be a more uh, a proper increase in defense spending in a point of a half percent or percent of GDP spending similar uh, more um, money invested in local or more money going back into local authorities as we constantly see bin crises across the nation which it seems like such a, a, a fundamental service and yet it's in such danger and dire straits that people are now getting their bins collected once every four weeks so money needs to go into local authorities and the councils to help those services and local health services whether it's homeless services or mental health support emergency services like the police the ambulance service and the fire service more money there um essentially just reinvesting in public services for the people okay so one final question before we end may said this the other day duncan but the british people need to know that the end is in sight. Is austerity coming to an end? I'd say George Osborne's austerity is coming to an end. Uh, I think we'll find out in a couple of years after Brexit, seeing where our economic state is in. But depends what measure are we going to use for austerity? Will it be putting money back into public services? Does that represent the end of austerity? Does 
finally having paid off national debt represent the end of austerity or is it welfare spending what's the measure because i don't feel like the program of austerity is coming to an end because whilst we're getting less and less cuts that seems to be well we've cut the fat we're not going to allow it to come back that's not the end of austerity that's just the continuation of a plateau of austerity interesting comment Duncan, thank you very much for coming back on Sug Sound. It was a pleasure. Please do join in the conversation on social media. Our hashtag is Sug Sound. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Hugo Sug. And be sure to rate and subscribe so other people can find this podcast. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Sug Sound. Thank you for listening to this episode in the mini-series on homelessness on Sug Sound. You are? I'm Duncan Kushner, reporting from uh, Birmingham, uh, United Kingdom.